Mia, it's our last episode. I, I refuse to accept that, so I'm just not going to claim it. I'm not going to claim it. I'm not going to claim well, it. Let's, let, instead of talking about, I was going to ask, like, how we're feeling now that it's the final the final uh, countdown. It's our um, final skate. This afternoon is our final skate. The number of times that we have quoted that scene. By the way, Richie has never fucking seen The Cutting Edge. And I saw him last night. And we, I don't know, we were talking about rom-coms because I'm writing a rom-com script. And he was like, oh, like what, you know, like what what, what would constitute a rom-com? And we had this whole conversation about it. I'm sorry, it. I need you to we, slow down. He asked the question, <laughs> what would constitute a rom-com? Because it's, well, he's he's also he's also a, a man who, you know, lives he, into is, some is male he, stereotypes. Is he, is he unfamiliar with the genre? <laughs> well, I think, if it, to, to be fair, like, if you start breaking it down, like, there are certain rom-coms that lean way more calm, and then rom. certain rom-coms that lean way more drum. Rom, rom, and drum, yes. There's more drum. And I feel like the cutting the edge, like, even though it's very funny... Oh, it's definitely like, more drum rom than calm. It's more drum. I mean, for sure. For you know sure. what I mean? But um, okay, so Richie and I. Thank you for helping me not judge that question. Showing that there's thanks. a ton of validity to the question. Sorry, Richie. You're, you're welcome. Listening. You're welcome. <laughs> no shade, Richie, if you're listening. <laughs> you're welcome. Um, so oddly enough, like sidebar, he and I both, this was such a weird coincidence. He and I both watched when harry met sally for the first time within the last few months like how weird is that first of all i can't believe that i cannot believe that's a movie i saw before you did oh yeah but but i also watched it in adulthood and saw it for the first time within the last three to five years like for sure for yeah it was one of those ones that missed me and i was again got away from me um even though I love the both of them, and obviously, like, it's a New York-y movie, so, like, you know. Yes, but because I'm writing movie. a rom-com. It's so New York-y. Um, so I'm writing a rom-com, and I was like, oh, I should go back and watch, like, all the classiques, you know? So that was, like, number one, you know? Everybody's yeah. like, you have to watch When Harry Met Sally. Anyway, um, so with that conversation, he was like, what are some of your favorites? And I was like, well, top three, obviously, oh, The Cutting Edge. I don't even for you. I can't even believe it. This is going to be you think you can? for me. No, I'm saying I don't know if I could. So this is illuminating. Really? I mean, um, I don't know that I would have I'm, said cutting edge, which is interesting, but I think it's getting back to your genre question of like, I don't know that I would have tagged it in the category. So I don't know it's that more I drum. That. Yeah, it's more drum. It's more drum. Mm-hmm. It's more drum. I guess, yeah, I guess the ones I like are more drum than, 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 than calm. <laughs> Or drama and comedy. But I get it. within my within my top three is definitely the Cutting Edge and French Kiss with Meg Ryan and Kevin Klein. Like that's so you one of my have favorites. a Meg Ryan theme going on. That's very interesting. You're also I mean, showing a classic '90s favoritism. Like there's a there's very much a coming '90s of age. rom-coms were doing it. They were really but, doing it. But it's also a very much a coming of age. Yes. situation we were of a very yes. impressionable age you know like i don't even remember when harry yes. mcsally came out but french kiss was like 95 and i only remember that because remember when you used to have to call 777 film to get all the movie times mm-hmm. 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 so there was a period of time where i was like calling 777 film to get the movie times i was not going to see french kiss but every time i called for a stretch of time i had to listen to the movie wait, times wait. for french wait, kiss. Wait. <laughs> can i do an impression of the guy saying french kiss yeah <laughs> 
Because I remember his voice, okay? <laughs> I'm going to start cracking up. Okay. I've had enough whiskey for this. <clears throat> you have selected French Kiss. <laughs> Rated P. <laughs> Rated PG-13. <laughs> to find a theater showing your selection, press one. You remember that? <laughs> Do you know how many times I called that shit? Like, oh I'm, my god, yeah. yes. Anyway. <laughs> French yes. Kiss is my shit. I've seen that movie so many times. It's so good. Um, Who is but, the male uh, lead? Why are we talking? Kevin Klein, mustachioed oh. Kevin Klein, D- lo- I lovely. I don't. I'll have. I will. I'll hold an open mind and explore it. I heavily trust your recommendations. So there's that. You've but never I'm, seen French Kiss? I've never seen French Kiss. That's what I'm trying to get to. I think you'll I've enjoy it a lot. It. I've never seen it. You'll enjoy it. it a lot, especially now, but I think. For, but Kevin Klein as the romantic lead, I'm like, I don't know. I like, I'm more so, of the Richard Gere. You know, <sighs> I can even do, I can even do, who was her lead in um, Addicted to Love with Meg Ryan? Who was that guy? Oh, Matthew Broderick. Matthew Broderick, exactly. I was trying to show you a spectrum. It could even be the quirky. It could be the Matthew Broderick. I just don't so, see the Kevin Klein of it all. All right, we got to pause to talk about French Kiss for five seconds. <laughs> so, Kevin Klein. I have to be honest. I am not like super familiar with Kevin Klein's oeuvre. oeuvre. I knew you, you were going to say it. I knew you were going to say that word. I've seen a fish called Wanda like once. I've seen In and Out many times as we Same. all. Know. That's my like, one Kevin Klein reference. Yes, and that that's also like an odd. Kevin Klein is kind of like a chameleon. I feel like he's a little bit different in every movie. And in French Kiss, to be honest, he's like the least Kevin Kleiny of all. Like he's where yeah. he has a mustache. He has this really thick French accent. His voice sounds completely different. Like he just you do not recognize him as Kevin Klein. It's very weird. Yeah. Um. But delightful. He's just like this very stoic, like un seemingly unfeeling like man. Yeah. And she's this like incredibly, like incredibly neurotic to a hilarious degree American. Basically, like her fiance leaves her for a French woman while he's in France on business and she goes to like get him after he breaks up with her. And she and Kevin Klein meet on the plane and you know, hilarity ensues. Da, 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 da. That sounds wonderful. like a very classic rom-com setup right there. Mm-hmm. Oh, so it's, it's so delightful. I just feel like, I don't know, it has like an extra, I don't know. It's got, With got a little extra. line in the forefront, there are definitely films that post-date French Kiss that are clearly derivative now. Like, mm. I feel like that, that plot has happened a few times. Like what? And now I'm not remembering, but I've seen it since then without having seen French Kiss. So I know it's a copy plot. Got it. You know, I don't, d- I don't you know, remember what's, the, what's the word? What's the word um, when you're, you know, like a knockoff? Like, I, I keep wanting to say disenfranchise. It's not the word, but like when you're like the losing party in a breakup when you you feel like you're oh the, um, whatever the and then you and, and, and then you're like um, yeah exactly right and then you're mm-hmm. like the and then you're with a very focused attitude trying to go get back your love get back your person but then yeah. in, the, in the midst of that you enlist someone in your journey you but then you actually the fall person. in love with that person that yes. is a tried yes. and true yes. thing yes yes right. Yes. Oh, you would love French Kiss, man. It's so <laughs> good. 
It's so good. And I feel like what I love about that movie is that the 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 love and the attraction between the two of them just feels really evolved and adult, like in a way that mm. I didn't really see in a lot of mm. other films. You'd be loving and, adult people acting adult. You know what I mean? You're such an, you know, <laughs> that's you right there. there was ever, what are you like, talking about? If there was ever like a thing that was going to be like, what? you know... <laughs> That this is a film Caitlin would like. It's like, are the adults adulting? Are they adulting? What are you talking about? You like like adult adulting of like people. You know what I mean? You don't see it for yourself? I feel like that's a thing. I feel like you need to elaborate. <laughs> I know. Now I'm not going to feel like, I don't feel like I have a lot to go off of. But I just feel like knowing what attracts you. Yeah. It's usually like mature people mm-hmm. like you like that's maturity fair. you like maturity that's what i'll say and now i remembered what what made me think to say that i'm not going to say it here but just you remember a summer indulgence oh god <laughs> um you had yeah. in a very in a very rigorous I mean, environment that to be fair <laughs> In our Whithouse episode, I might have sang a song of hers and dedicated it to him. So it's not like the yeah. listeners don't know that there's yeah. like a one who got away in my past. And you would very argue much he's, a he's man. mature. He was mature. He was. And he was only 28 at the time, which is hilarious. So like. You right. Know, but, but, relative, but, every, but everything's relative. But I just mean, you know, he was yes. mature to you then. You know. He was a man. A man. Exactly. exactly. How in the fuck did we get on this? What what happened? How did French we start kiss. talking? You wanted, about this? you wanted to talk to me about French Kiss because you were talking with Richie about the rom com genre writing because rom-coms. you're writing rom coms and you went back to the source of of your favorite films and you said your favorite three are French Kiss, Cutting Edge, and we did not get to the third. I don't I don't know. I would have to think about a third. I just knew that those two were in my top three because I love those oh, two. Oh that's movies. maybe that's what I maybe that's why I, I assume there was a known third, but yes, okay. You know but, two of Oh, the top I it was it was all because Richie said, I don't think I've seen the cutting edge. What is it about? And trying to explain the cutting edge to someone who's never seen it was like he seemed really excited though, because I was like, they go to the Olympics and he was like <laughs> What would you say? You'd say, so it's about well, two fallen winter Olympic stars, one a figure skater, one a hockey player that for various mm-hmm. reasons have gotten in their own way and don't see a path to like, you know, Olympic gold. He got, he has partial find, blindness. Until they find he gets an one injury. another. Exactly. Until they find yeah. one another. And, and then turning against, circles Against comes all odds, they, <laughs> an unlikely pair takes the ice. Her, an accomplished, you know, personally trained figure skater and him, a brutish hockey player from the Midwest who knows his way around, you know, the pub more so than a toe pick. And then. Wow. 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 (laughs) And but still, you know, it was that tension of being at your growth edge and being out of your comfort zone that created enough friction points for them to identify their own chemistry, which, you know, was unlikely. But then but then just. Blows you away on the screen. Oh, my God. Did you say growth edge? And is that like a management term? Yes and yes. (laughs) Excellent. 
I also told Richie, because we like doing Russian accents together, I was like, I think you'll really enjoy this film because the coach is Russian. And he calls Doug Douglas, and he calls Kate Katya. You are skating in nowhere. I love that guy. <laughs> Higher. I love him. Oh, that movie's amazing. Yeah. So this is our last episode. And rather than I was originally, I was going to ask, like, how are you feeling that this is the last episode? But how about we focus on the beautiful things? Like, what is what is this pod given you? What has this pod given me? Um, that is a great question. Um, I'll say from the earliest days, um, because essentially, you know, we weren't even a full year into the pandemic. We were kind of like six months into the pandemic, all bored out of our minds because now we've been trapped at home for six months. And I think Caitlin, didn't she should speak for herself and her point of view on this. I think she had a vision for this like long before I did or knew it was something that she might want to do. But she asked, you know, if we should could do this podcast. And I don't think I hesitated. I was like, yeah, let's do it. Even though I had no idea like what we were doing. Um, but so in hindsight, I said yes, because for most of our friendship, we've lived apart. Like most of our close friendship, we've lived apart. Like we started becoming friends like six months before high school graduation. And so then college took us in totally different directions. We've had overlapping periods, very short periods of being in the same place. But like most of our friendship has been like across the many state lines. Um and so in some ways, the pandemic made us closer because, like, we actually talked more, I think, in the at the beginning of the pandemic and since the pandemic started, really, than we did for, like, a lot of phases of our friendship over time. And so that's true. Yeah. And so um, so and so one thing I would just say the, the podcast gave me was like a closer connection to you, like a more frequent, like, connection rooted in our shared passion for everything pop culture which when you think back to like foundational, like ways we connected in our friendship, it was this, like this was the beginning of our friendship. So, um, so it gave me that, um, and all the laughs and joy along the way of being able to like take down all of our favorite stuff. It's giving me an audio history of our friendship. Like, I think it's cool that we'll always have like these three years of like, or two and a half years of like stories that kind of go back as far as middle school and stories from then to like, you know, how we've grown up and what we've loved and what we've hated and people that have come and gone in our lives and friendships and, you know, lovers and all the things. And so I just love that we have that um, shared with the world, really. (laughs) Um, And the last thing is um, I, in a impulsive move, um, at a period in the pandemic where I was like heavily online dating, like included a link in my profile on prof- on my online profiles, like to this <laughs> That's podcast. Right. And so like, I was just like, Hey, we'll get, we'll get listens like at the minimum, you know what I mean? Like, um, and it was one of the reasons why my current partner reached out to me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I knew uh, that he listened. I didn't realize it was one of the reasons that he reached out. Well, I mean, it was, yeah, he was like, assuming. Yeah, it was like part of the, it was part of the, it was part of the, a part of a package, right? He's like, oh, I want to learn more about this person. Um, And uh, I felt like it gave me a lot of cover because I was like, if you listen to the podcast for five seconds, you know I'm crazy. That's all. So, like, self explanatory. Self explanatory. (laughs) So, I almost wish everyone 
I feel like, hey, headline y'all, great dating technique. Get with a friend, record some conversations that you feel comfortable sharing externally and just throw that shit up there. It's a great way that's more than like the one dimensional, boring descriptions we all put of ourselves on these dating apps and actually gets, so you know, true. a chance for someone to actually get to know you. So that worked. Um, in that world, in that like, I felt like I, I, was, I showed up more confident, I think, on our first date, just knowing like he liked who I was in one of the most important relationships in my life, which is with you. Like he's seen that interaction was like, I'm down. Cool. And I was like, great. Like there's a lot of my life. I don't have to explain to you now. Amazing. So that's what I'll share. Mm. Yeah. He knew you. He, oh, he thought he did. Was... He thought he did. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a, there's like a shorthand there. I guess. Yes. Yeah. If he's listened. Do you have a sense of how many episodes he listened to before you went on your first date? Um, I think he would say two or three. So that's not, pretty not more than that's, one. That's commitment. I, w- I would say that. I know. The one thing it did lead to that was weird was it led to an imbalance of information. Like I walked into our first uh, date like, yes, I don't know shit yes. about you, dude. He walked in being like, I know your best friend's name is Caitlin. <laughs> I know your high school memories. I know your high school memories. Exactly. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that so much. I'm a big fan of time capsules. This is like a digital time capsule for us, like of this time, you know, and it's it's there forever because we talk about what's going on currently. We talk about our memories. We talk about our feelings about totally all these all this media that we hold so dear. And it's been really nice. I feel like there have been some people from our um, from like high school, from junior high who've like dipped in and out. And listened, you know. That I think that's been really nice. Just like reconnecting. I think I would also say it's allowed me to make peace with certain parts of our past. Like, hmm. there's you and I have joked many, many times about middle school, our different middle school experiences, and like not to the point of drama, but like. I think sitting underneath that has always been this like feeling of like in middle school, I was a loser and you were a cool kid, you know? And like, see, I have no, like, <laughs> but like, I have no concept of that. Unearthing all of our story, collective stories about all of our middle and high school experiences. Like I don't carry anything about that anymore. Not that I carried it in a strong way before now, but just like, I'm able to like, just let that go. I wonder why that is. Do you have a sense of why that is? I think it's in some ways what you were talking about. Like there's enough of a core group of our former classmates who've reached out over the last three years to like validate and laugh at and like (laughs) wish that they could also join in on (laughs) collective storytelling about um, Mm -hmm. our shared experiences growing up in Brooklyn that that mm-hmm. in that in group out group dynamic that was definitely for me more pronounced in middle school than high school when our groups kind of like came together and whatever. but like there was enough of that kind of reaction where I was like no we, we did have a shared experience um that even right. if at the time at 11 felt very in group out group of like you're not in the cool group. you know what I mean like yeah. in the in the 25 years since <laughs> it's like or longer oh Jesus 30 years since middle school, almost. Um, Anyway, (laughs) um, just, you know, is makes it more of like, 
we look back like then those those um click group dynamics mattered more and now i think we all like across those clicks probably just see ourselves as part of a broader collective that like went to the same schools in middle school in particular there are certain people in high school where i still be like uh i don't fuck with you man i don't fuck with you now maybe you don't i don't fuck you should know you (laughs) you should know who you are oh i'm not even i'm not i'm not gonna taint the podcast with some negative talk you know I mean, can you text me later with like who, who you would still not fuck with from high school? Yeah, that would make me really I'll send, happy. I'll send it to you right now. That would that would actually. I you're would like, love I send it so to you. Much. You're gonna be like, oh duh. Oh okay. I well. just sent it. Oh, obviously, yeah, same, <laughs> same, same. I saw any of those. There's no stretch of time. <laughs> no. <laughs> No, no absolutely not. Fucking famous last words. Watch you like go to the nail salon and like run into someone, and then you're like, "Oh, you wanna, you wanna grab a coffee?" That's not gonna. I'm just making up a story you know... right now. <laughs> no, you know how I hold grudges forever. You know, I, I I hold a grudge like nobody's business. Okay. I know, but I feel like the fact that I said it is gonna make the opposite outcome happen now. You know what I mean? Mm-mm. It's not. Trust me, it's not. Okay. Um, that's so beautifully said, and I I so agree. And it kind of, you see that, I mean, not just with our pod, but like you see that just with, if you go on like fucking Facebook or Instagram and like look at who your friends are and you're just like, oh, right. Like it didn't, like it doesn't matter. Like when we're damn near 40, like all we're looking at is, oh yeah, we both went to Huddy. We both went to Midwood. Like who gives a shit? Like what group or what clique like we were in? Totally. We all like have those ridiculous memories. And that mattered, that felt like it mattered so much at the time. To me, it, it did, because I, I never, I don't, I genuinely don't think I realized that I was in, like, any position of, like, popularity privilege or whatever in junior high, just because I was friends with a lot of people. Like, I told you, one of my closest friends was was Cheyenne, and, like, I would go to her sleepovers every year, and so would Jury, and so would Jenna. Like, we... You know, I kind of like floated around a lot. Yeah, so I had no concept of that. <laughs> but um, there is also like the slam book of it all, which we talked about. So we did. I should have known. That. I should have known because it was like all like me and my friends like in the fucking slam book. It's just like, okay, like, yeah, you know. But then I went to high school and became a loser. So <laughs> sorry. I feel like I dragged became you down. A, became an <laughs> STD. No. no. <laughs> No, my uh, my busted face dragged me down, according to uh, Andrew. I will never, ever, ever forget that. Like, as much as like the click, the clicks of it all, like does not stick with you. I feel like those insults really stick with you. They never leave. (laughs) I remember every insult that anyone ever. Yeah. Any that any anyone ever threw my way about how I looked. I do feel like it's time to introduce our final skate. What the focus of our final episode? <laughs> yes, which we've been waiting for for a long, 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 long time. Um, it's a very special film. <laughs> I was I gonna say it's fine. I definitely don't know. I would that I would have described it that way. <laughs> we described it what way? A special film that's like <laughs> been coming for a long time. It is. I think it's pretty special because I feel like there's no other movie like this. <laughs> There is to not. To be fair. You know what there I There is not. I also <laughs> have to, I'm also, I'm also channeling and holding your love for one of the main leads. For both. For both, but one in particular, you know. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Is there is there a reason why you have to channel and hold it? Because if you didn't have to. Ch- because okay. like because it's just like as a movie, but like you know if you love one of the main if you love one of the main leads the way I know you do, then it holds a special place. You know. What but I mean? it. I think it's like it's like campy greatness. This movie. It is campy greatness, and I want to. It really. I really is. want to elevate what you just shared because. Um, so I swear, out this this story will take no more than twenty seconds, thirty seconds. But a month ago, I went to the St. Louis Central Library for the first time. It is a majestic place. It is a beautiful building. Got lost there. One of the books I took out when I got my first library card here was a book on Sontag. So it was like it's a book about her work. So that I can, yeah. like, you know, read that as an overview and then maybe read some other stuff because I haven't read her stuff since college. Oh, cool. But literally page one of Sontag is, like, her imprint on pop culture was, like, blurring the line be? between highbrow and lowbrow. Exactly. Yeah. And, like, ele- and, ele- and elevating camp as having purpose and value mm-hmm. in itself because of the way it plays on everything. And I'm so – anyway. And I read that and I was like, oh, my God, Sontag, I am a disciple of your work. Like, I <laughs> – I am. I am she. You are me. And so, yes, the camp factor in this film is high. And for many, many people who are snobs, who, who disgust me, Joe being one of them, we fight about this often. You know, in his mind, the only things that have value are things that are, like, well-regarded. Right. He does not see the value in camp. and it Things is that take themselves seriously and are taken seriously. Seriously, yes. That's, like, literally yeah. his only, only funnel for goodness. And I'm like, that is so lame. That is lame. I wish you knew like, how, how lame it was. Have some fun, man. Totally. Has he watched Mommy Dearest? Like, has he seen it? I don't know if he has, but you know, that's exactly right. It's like, I got to build, I got to build a camp cannon for Joe. I think he'd love it. I think he would, he would appreciate. You just I don't, gotta, think, I don't, I don't think he would. I think he would sit above it. I think he would be like, I see what's happening. I it see makes what... me really mad. It does. I know, I know. We, like, I fight about it with passion often because I'm like, dude, chill the fuck out. But is that just so? Oh, my God. Taking a pause. Like before we even like this is a really like really protracted ramp up to like us announcing what this film is. But anyway, so I wonder, is this like a straight people versus queer thing. Because oh, yeah. she says it on page one. She's like, camp is queer. Queer right. is camp. And I'm like, I can't right. explain it to you. I don't, I can't explain it. I can't explain it, Joe. I can't explain My it. My friend, so like, obviously like you and I, we adore Death Becomes Her. Yes. My friend Vicky, heterosexual, we we got into a conversation about it and she was like, that movie is, whoa, what was she, what did she say? She was basically like, it's so tacky. Yes, on purpose. Jesus Christ. And I swirled around with my hair. And I was like, it's camp. Huh? And then I went on Tumblr and I flipped out, obviously, because that's what you do when you're queer and you're upset. So I went on Tumblr and I was just like, death becomes her. Man, man, man. And literally, like, every person was like, it's camp. It's camp. It's camp. Yes. Uh, oh, and it was such a joy to behold as a child. To come discover on. Camp. It's joyful. This is why. That's why. This is why I'm overwhelmed by this book um, about Sontag's work. Because literally, I I got through a page and a half, and it hit on all of that in page one. 
the, pa- oh. the power of camp, how it's a rejection of this like westernized, like elitist wasp notion about like what is high culture, how it's queer to love camp, how camp is queer. I just was like, it's like a page one and a half. And I was like, ah. <laughs> ah. oh my God, I'm so glad ah. that we're talking about this, <laughs> especially like with regard to this film, because I feel like there's a huge waspy current like going through this film, like this film. The world of this film is very waspy and New England. Yes, and I, and so, I got okay. the world wrong. I thought it was Pacific Northwest wasp based on the vistas. Understand Come to find out it's New England wasp. New England wasp vistas. But nevertheless, Understandable. nevertheless, nevertheless, a wasp vista. Okay. <laughs> um, God, I have so much to say about this. So the film that we are talking about is The Good motherfucking son the good son okay this is from 1993 it was a macaulay culkin vehicle that's um, the only way was... to describe this film it is a macaulay culkin vehicle which is what every film starring macaulay, Cul- macaulay culkin was called <laughs> following home alone until he went into hiding like that chapter that's true these were all every film in, in major studios looking for child actors in this fa- in this in this period there was a Macaulay Culkin vehicle. There was, a, you know, there was a steady stream of film. The director said, who do I need? I need Macaulay. So here's what's so interesting about this film. And I feel like I'm, I feel like it's the reason it, the, I don't know. There's like, there's all this like discourse about what constitutes camp and what doesn't. And I feel like the piece needs to take itself seriously enough to be considered camp. And I feel like this film was trying to take itself very seriously. So the this, production this history of this film. Drama. They thought it was a drama. It thought it was a straight up like <laughs> harrowing drama. Produ- a little bit of production history and speaking of drama, this sort of like sets the stage for our discussion. The original screenplay for this was written by Ian McEwen, who wrote Atonement. I know. I mean, when I saw that, I was like whiplash whiplash what is happening? also about an evil child like what happened to this also guy like does he have some kind of trauma well, well number one <laughs> thank you for even showing that through line in his work of like evil child to evil child yes right and atonement has been regarded as like fine literature prestige worthy prestige. of rendering on what? the screen leading to oscar nominated performances like atonement like that movie to this british day, actors like, even it, it holds british weight actors. like i remember seeing yes. that movie and being like whoa atonement it went there you know it did go there and so then to see ian McEwen, i was like whiplash associated with the mm-hmm. good son say what now i had a right shock. my jaw dropped right same and i would love to read that original script because I think what happened was... What had happened was... What had happened was... <laughs> so, the original script was... I mean, it, it filled in a lot of blanks. There was a lot of detail about, you know... So, all right, let's pull back. I'm going to read the synopsis briefly, just so we all know what's happening. So, Great. the synopsis of The Good Son. Mark, Elijah Wood... A young boy who loses his mother must stay with his extended family while his father is away on business. Mark becomes acquainted with his cousin, Henry McCulkey Culkin. Um, however, McCulkey Culkin. Culkin. 
I feel like that's like a bastardization of like a really Irish name. Anyway, however, the extent of Henry's depravity becomes clear when Mark sees him kill a neighbor's dog and intentionally create a traffic pile up on the highway. After a supposed mishap on an icy pond with Henry's sister, Connie, Quinn Culkin, another Culkin, uh, Mark tries to reveal Henry's crimes before it's too late. So, yeah, this is our synopsis. So, I when this film was originally, it's important to name yeah. the part of mm. the plot that doesn't come across in the synopsis about his deceased brother. Do we reveal that later? Yeah, yeah, his deceased baby brother. Like th- this. So, Elijah Wood plays Mark, who's the cousin question mark and then he's visiting henry his cousin henry's got a younger sister and he had a younger brother an infant who has died so there's still like the cloud of grief is still hanging over the family especially the mother who blames herself um so anyway like big i mean this is like classic melodrama okay um classic So the original script apparently filled in a lot more about like the psychology of Henry and why he does all of these violent things, you know, like there was just there was a lot more detail in there, which I think gave it perhaps more credibility and perhaps would have made it less camp. Anyway, so at that time, when the film was originally in development, guess who was originally supposed to play Henry? This was like maybe three years before it actually got made. I'm not sure, but I'm sure you saw the thing about Fox and how Macaulay wound up. So I have a yes, yes. So originally, Henry was supposed to be played by Jesse Bradford. A young Jesse that Bradford. Would been, that would have been a potentially better choice, but I'm just going to say that. Would have been interesting. But, you know, what happens is, so, like, um, th- th- you know, it was it was one of these situations where, um, so Fox was, w- when Ian McEwen wrote the original sc- script, Fox was concerned it wasn't commercial enough. Maybe it, like, went a little too deep psychologically. <laughs> So it actually like fell into development hell. The script kept going through all these evolutions. And in the meantime, obviously like any kid actor that was attached to it, like went through puberty and looked too old, like within a matter of like one or two years. So I think if you go on, maybe it's Wikipedia, you can track sort of like all the kids that were attached to it at different times. It's it's like, I don't know, like three different sets of kids before it ultimately ended up being McCulky Culkin. Um, and I'm never going to say his name <laughs> the right way ever again. Um, so direct quote from Wikipedia. This progress was suddenly interrupted when Kit Culkin, Macaulay Culkin's father and manager, at the time a notoriously influential force in Hollywood due to the child's stardom, wanted his son to star in the film. Stage dad vibes. Wishing to prove Macaulay's capacity in a dark role, he made his son's part in The Good Son a condition for his appearing in Home Alone 2 Lost in New York. So Home Alone 2 Lost in New York wouldn't have happened if not for this film. In parlance, in common parlance, that's what they call having Fox by the balls. (laughs) 
This is true. So yeah, the script went through like a kajillion evolutions. And then once you have Macaulay Culkin involved, who's like fresh off of Home Alone, which at the time was one of the top grossing films in movie history, you know, obviously they're going to try to like make it more appealing to a mass audience. So they're going to dumb it down as much as possible. And hence you have the beautiful camp that we have before us today. Let's get into this. Let's. Let's get into this. So it's so funny that you say that you initially thought it was like uh, Pacific Northwest because I went into this remembering. I was like, oh, this is New England, isn't it? It's like upper New England, like Maine or Vermont or whatever. And I felt like they waited, they laid it on like way too thick with the, this place takes place in Maine. The first dinner scene at the house, they're eating whole lobsters in the first dinner scene at they the were, house, including, including the kids. And like, and Macaulay's like showing Elijah how to like crack. The, how to crack it yeah, open. Yeah. yeah. Like, you know, foreshadowing, like a Mainer, you know, like a true Mainer. Yep. Well, like also like a true maniac who like has no qualms about like, I don't know, breaking into bones, a killing a dog, a maniac killing his little that. brother, a Mainer and a maniac. But I'm, I feel like I'm, I'm still kind of like getting ahead of myself. I feel like the premise for this film and like one of the deepest themes running through this film is just like bad parenting, like horrendous parenting. The premise of this film is that like the film starts off Elijah Wood, a.k.a. Mark's mother is sick. She's like on her deathbed. And um, first of all, my favorite thing is that like he's at her side in the hospital and he's like all heartfelt. And he's like, you're not going to die, mom. You're not going to die because I won't let you. And then it immediately cuts to her funeral. <laughs> it's not funny. It's not funny. Mm. The, the film is funny. So, <laughs> um, so she dies. And then his father, who is like a deadbeat piece of shit, says, oh, I have to go somewhere on business. But like, you can stay with your your relatives in Maine for like two weeks right after your mom dies and you're like completely fragile and fucked up. Like what? I had a way more generous reading of that. I was like, Oh God. Okay. Poor dad, solo parenting, feeling like he needs Mm. to like hold down the financial fort, you know, death. Wow. That is generous. Maybe they've been saddled with medical bills because you know, she had cancer or whatever. So I was just like, because he said something that, like, sounded trite and, and insufficient when they said goodbye. Basically, yes. he, drops them, he drops them off. You know, he drops um, Elijah Wood's character. Mark, you said, right? He drops yes. him off at the house. He hugs him tight. And he's like, you know, it's like two weeks. He's paraphrasing. He's like, it's two weeks away so we can have a lifetime together. He said something, he said something like that where I was like, no. That doesn't, that doesn't meet the moment, my dude, to your point. Your, <laughs> your, child's, your only child's mother just died. And you're leaving him immediately. So I took, I read into that, like, he has to be away. But also grief is a unpredictable thing. Like a lot of times parents that are grieving major loss, like the loss of a significant other, like cannot parent. I cue in here, you know, in Hope Floats, mom has full on shutdown, cannot parent, like in the wake of a divorce. And so, you know, grief is just unpredictable. Like, you know, he maybe needed to be on his own grieving journey. He didn't want his son to be witness to that. He's a man, all these things. Like, I mean, there's just so many things. 
And we don't have the like, even we don't even have a, this is the early nineties. We did not have a discourse about toxic masculinity at the time, which like, you know, so this was the steely thing to do. Like go provide. Cause that's my job as a man, you know? Yeah, it was so like that and like chin up, son. Like, you'll be the man for the both of us. Like, you know, that kind of vibe. (laughs) You will get murdered. You'll fly off a cliff. Um, Yeah. A Willy Wonka reference for those of you who are not tracking (laughs) the melody. So that's like how Mark ends up at the house with his psychotic cousin that his family does not know is psychotic. And so he's obviously going through his grief. So I think the parent, like his, his aunt, they're his aunt and uncle, right? Like I'm not yeah. making that up, right? Yeah, they're aunt and uncle. So his aunt and uncle, the aunt of which, by the way, we've mentioned this in a prior episode, has the single white female haircut. Yes. Classic. Classic. She is like waspy incarnate. Like she is the ethereal like wasp dream, if you will. So they're kind of like handling Mark with kid gloves because they just recognize like he's fragile. He just lost his mother. But they're also like kind of looking out for any erratic behavior. So I feel like there's this whole convenient excuse for Henry to do wild shit and then for Mark to get blamed for it. It's like that. There has to be a, th- a theme for that. Like there, there are movies like this where like the protagonist is the only person who like knows the truth about someone and like everyone else thinks they're crazy kind of thing. It feels very Shakespearean. <laughs> but typically in Shakespeare, like the reader's the only one. Yes. Ooh, well said. Also, the fact that, like, I think at the end of this film, I I had to, like, pause and be like, wait a minute. He's only been there for two weeks and, like, all this shit happens in two weeks. Like, that's kind of insane. Um, so over the course of the film, um, Henry and Mark, because they're, like, around the same age, they're, like, hanging out, hanging out, hanging out and, you know, becoming real bros. I would love an and, exploration um, of their hangouts because, like, this freedom, <laughs> roaming on the like main shore bullshit of like be home for lunch and dinner but meanwhile like frolicking to and fro was just like a reminder of a 90s childhood and every childhood that preceded that (laughs) until Mm -hmm. the digital the digital age kind of took over um because kids you children parents listening to this who have children do your children see outside unsupervised do y'all let that happen anymore is that a thing or is the digital world the new outside where you're like be careful and you're trying to manage their digital world you know there's that cliff that like his mother loves to look out on like she knows about that cliff and she's just letting her son and her nephew like just go roaming around they could go fly off the cliff like at the end of the movie you know what I mean? The messages that we send young men, basically, that the world is theirs and they can just go explore is so mm. crazy to me. We don't do that with our women, you know? No, no, we, we keep, sure we, don't. We, we keep our women close to the home. <laughs> ugh, ugh. So, like, slowly but surely, they're hanging out. I th- yeah, there's also a lot of, like, treehouse time, you know? 
And I feel like one of the first moments where we kind of get the vibe that Henry might not be totally copacetic as a human being. You know what I mean? Is when they climb up the treehouse. When they climb up to the treehouse, you know. And then Henry gets there first and Mark is on the ladder and there's this like big gap between the top of the ladder and like to get in the treehouse. It's like quite precarious. Again, speaking to. I was like, why is this happening? Quite precarious. So precarious. Early 90s parenting, early 90s childhoods. Like we lived, we we played in cement playgrounds, you know? And everything was so dangerous. So many children broke their limbs. I feel like it was very yes. common when I was coming up for children yes. to break their limbs. And we treated it as normal. So many. When people, when people would come back to school, like, oh, I broke my leg. Oh, I broke my arm. We weren't like, oh, that's negligent parenting. We were like, oh, my occupational hazard. It was. <laughs> All these, all this evidence around us of, of of parenting negligence, and we just treated it like it was normal. I will say I've never <laughs> broken a limb. Thank you very much. Same, same. Because same. we had parents who cared. No, really, though, we had lack. We were latchkey kids, and we did not. But like, that's a story for another day. <laughs> no, and also um, as a contrast, um, I never broke anything. My brother was constantly like breaking shit and getting stitches. So like. But that goes back to your point about like how boys are allowed to run free. Of this. Yeah, totally. So the the treehouse moment is, which is like arguably one of the most iconic moments of the entire film. So there's this big gap between the top of the ladder and the treehouse, and Henry like reaches his arm down to offer to Mark, like, "Hey, grab my hand. I'll pull you up." And Mark grabs his hand. And then Henry, like, kind of fucking with him, just, like, lets him dangle there. Lets him dangle there. And then he goes, hey, Mark, if I let you go, you think you could fly? Important moment to remember. (laughs) Also known as foreshadowing. Ooh. Yeah, that was, like, our second piece of foreshadowing. Right? For the big cliff moment. Oh, do you think the mom, the mom being out on the Vista was one? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm just like, we're going to, that's, that cliff is going to come back. And they show her a few times throughout the film. So yeah, like the Henry, it just like gets worse and worse, keeps escalating, especially with how Henry is with his younger sister, Connie. Um, a Culkin sister. Yes. The Culkin sister. Who's Quinn. so adorable. Quinn. Quinn, Quinn the twin. Well, she's not a twin, but. <laughs> she might be. They had a lot of siblings. They were like a classic Irish Catholic family. There was like so many Culkin kids. Um, there were. I can yes. confirm. So like Mark is kind of like his antenna are up. He's like kind of starting to pay attention. Um, which for, can we pause for a second and just talk about how good Elijah Wood is in this movie? I don't know that. Oh God, what? Oh God, what? Oh God, what? Oh God, what? I don't know that I would have taken away from the film. And to be fair, I fell asleep on it. So like, don't even listen to what I'm saying right now. But for the part, (laughs) for the part that I saw, I don't know that I would take away. Oh, wow. Elijah is moving me with his acting now i look i look i'm not i'm not saying this i'm not saying this with a strong opinion because i recognize how flimsy 
I recognize how flimsy <laughs> the evidence is because I fell asleep. <laughs> what I will say is in the half hour, 35 minutes before I fell asleep, I was kind of struggling with his bug eyes. He was very much like this the whole time. Like, just... He's got big eyeballs. He's got big eyeballs. He knows eyeballs. how to use them. I disagree about the latter. Wow. <laughs> See, I watched this film and I come away with it. Like the whole time I was just like so focused on, first of all, like he's the protagonist of this film that is like a really intense thriller, you know, And he has to carry it and you have to feel the suspense and you have to feel all the stakes and everything. And he really fucking brings it like the whole way through. He was just so incredible for his age. I'm always so impressed with child actors. I don't think I can. I don't think I can fairly assess that. I feel like what I remember from watching it, what I remembered from watching it as a kid was Macaulay Culkin's performance because it was like scary. It was like eerie. And Which then, no, I mm, <laughs> I watch it now and I just find it really campy. <laughs> like, yeah, sure, you know. But it might but just as, be the dialogue. As a child, though, I was like, "Oh my god, my Home Alone boo is crazy. He's crazy." <laughs> um, did you have a Macaulay crush for any period of time? Uh uh-uh. Oh, I did. I did for a hot second after. I, Home wanted, Alone. I wanted to. I wanted to like be his friend. We all but did. I don't think I ever had a romantic or like attraction or That's anything. Fair. Yeah. That's Which fair. is another reason. Sorry. That's another reason why I was like, how did this film wind up in this season of our show? I didn't have an I didn't have an Elijah thing. I didn't have a Macaulay thing. So it must have been I, ha- I had both. I you had, had both. both. <laughs> yeah. Which is why I said from the very outset. You know, I think in hindsight, when I realized watching this, was like, oh, like, like Caitlin, like Caitlin's going to bring a certain, you know, you, you were like this movie when we first started. And I was like, oh, no. Oh, I fucking no. love this movie. Yeah, you I do. love this movie. It's so wackadoo. And also, like, I, God, like within the first 10 minutes, I was just like, this explains so much about me, like just watching this movie, because <sighs> I made... I made a crime drama series about like kids and murder and like it took place in New England and there are all these scenes in the woods. And then I watched this and I was like, oh, my God, like this directly influenced the naturals. I didn't even realize it. I was just remaking like a version of The Good Son. There you go. <laughs> um. So... Obviously, Henry's Henry's behavior escalates. Mark quickly realizes that he cray. Um, at the same time, Mark is really missing his mom. And Mark sort of, like, we should talk about this. Is he convinced that his mother has been reincarnated into his aunt? Because that's kind of what's implied. I hope not. He develops, like, a very unusual, like, borderline Oedipal attachment to his aunt. Bless you. Yeah. Bless you. Thank you. Bless you. So he thinks that he can share with her that Henry's crazy and that he's trying to kill Connie, yes. 
and then she has that great moment where she like slaps him and then she hugs him immediately and she's like don't ever come to me with these lies again shall we tell Um, them more of the major plot developments in the henry's a psychopath brother oh yeah please go on yeah you know trigger warnings aplenty well, again, I fell asleep, so you're going to have to fill in some of these gaps. But after car, well, let's back up. So first is the treehouse near near fall. Yeah. Yes. Right? Then yes. the next thing is they're playing and they um, Henry's kind of like the leader of the pack in a move to throw this mannequin like over a highway overpass. Mr. Where, highway. Where it falls you know, onto incoming tra- oncoming traffic and create some major multi-car pileup. Horrible. It's horrific. Is the next thing that happens the sister on the pond? Or is there stuff between? No, he kills a dog. He kills a dog. There's a dog killing. This is the second film in our podcast history with a dog viciously killed. I'm not proud of it. What was the other? Oh, fear. The dog gets decapitated. Yes, yes, yes. yes, This one, um, there's there's like a really rabid. I don't know if it's a stray or a neighborhood dog. It is. It is um, chained up. I think. If it's a dog at the beginning of the film, it's a it's a neighbor dog. It seems. It's a neighbor dog, but it's like very you know rowdy neighbor dog. Feeling a little feral. Every time it's feral. Feeling a little feral. Every time it sees Henry, so the dog like barks and um, it chases the two of them over this bridge and then like they get away and behind this fence just in time and then Henry gets in the dog's face and like starts barking yes. at it like rawr, I remember rawr, that. Rawr. I remember that, yeah. And Mark is looking at him with his big bug eyes and he's just like <laughs> Yeah. He's like, Why is that happening? What are you doing? Um and then there's a and then there's a couple well a few scenes later uh henry has basically he has what looks like a crossbow but instead of you know like uh arrows or whatever he's got like nails that he's shooting from it and mark is like well don't hurt the dog and he's like aiming it at that dog and he's like i'm just gonna scare him and then you don't see it but you hear the dog like make a noise like it was hit and it dies and then they fucking like throw the body down a well. It's like really fucked up. Oh, the well that's the featured dogs. prominently in the beginning. Yeah, the the well where uh, Macaulay Culkin whole, uh, hides his cigarettes. Yeah. <laughs> he lives fast, you know. So okay, so then there's there's a, there's a dog death, and then is the next terror. Yeah, the the ice ter- the pond. Yes. So, um, are they skating on the pond? Yeah. Okay. So they're skating on the pond. It's Henry and his little sister, and there must be thin ice Mm -hmm. somewhere. And she falls. It's like roped off. And she skates into it? Well, he's, he's, um, he's dragging her. They're going in circles, and he's holding her hand, and he's, like, going faster and faster. Um... And so he's like picking up all this momentum and then he just like lets her go. So she like glides yeah, past, she glides like, where past the area the thin where ice. it's like roped off. Yeah. He's a shit show. And she almost dies, but she doesn't. And how you. is she saved? Well, there's a shit ton of people there. 
So like, and Mark also like he puts two at this point, like he's fully on the Henry is crazy train. Um, so he puts two and two together. Like the mom says like, oh, they went skating and Mark like runs out the door. This is, oh, this is the morning after they have that whole confrontation scene, uh, where Mark like holds the, the scissors to his neck or whatever. I love that shit. See, this is what I mean. Like, there's no other movie like this where you have, like, 10-year-old boys just like, ah, you know, <laughs> having these, like, dramatic adult moments. But, like, Mark is afraid that he's going to kill him, he'll kill the, the the little sister overnight, so he, like, tries to stay up and, like, watch her. He's going to he, kill like, you, Cam. He's going to kill you, Cam. That movie and this movie have connective, like, tissue. <laughs> can't believe you remembered that. That makes me so happy. I don't happy. even remember the name of that movie, except that Jason uh, Bear. Rites of Passage. Rites of Passage. Rites of Passage. Thank you. Jason Bear playing a queer character. And that guy from Sex and the City. He's going to kill you, Cam. The guy who played Richard on Sex and the City. not supposed to be like this, baby bro. <laughs> <laughs> camp. That movie's camp. That I mean, movie's camp. <laughs> that movie's camp Um... But yeah, hey, like Mark. Oh, exactly. Hey, hey ho. <laughs> so like that's what Mark like sleeps in accidentally, and he like wakes up and he's just like, "Where are they?" And then he runs to the pond. He gets there like just as it happens, and um, I think I think because he's all like, "Oh my god!" Like everybody. Oh, and Henry's like over there holding his hand out trying to save oh, I re- his sister I re- I but like that, I not really it's like this like fake grasping thing i remember that from my exactly yeah oh so he's fucked the up. worst the worst and then finally like some the the rescue team like comes and finally gets her out and she's like thankfully alive but goddamn And then Henry moves on to, like, trying to kill the mom. And this is where I'm saying, like, I lost the plot because I fell asleep. So I got, <laughs> I, I, got, I got nothing. So what's crazy is that in my memory, like, th- th- nothing much happened between, like, the ice pond moment and then, like, the big end, like, cliff scene. So in the very end, like, the, this big, big dramatic ending. <sighs> Mark and Henry have a, yes, Mark and Henry have a tussle like on this cliff that the mother has been like revisiting over and over to mourn her, her dead infant son. They have this tussle and then basically it ends up that the mom is holding both of the kids off the edge of the cliff. And she basically, she's losing her grip on the both of them and she has to decide which one to drop. Very Sophie's choice in a different context. Very Sophie's choice. And she ultimately chooses Elijah Wood because I guess at this point she has... She chose good she's over evil. Trusting her, she chose good over evil. She's trusting her gut. She chose, um, I don't know, like nurture over nature. I don't, I don't know. Like her, her spiritual son as opposed to like her blood son. Um, Wasn't it heavily implied... Wasn't it heavily implied that he killed the brother? Oh, it was like, it's clear. It's clear as day that he killed the the brother. But, which I knew, but in my memory, I didn't know that the mom knew that. I just thought that, I didn't know that she really knew as much as she did. 
But upon rewatching, so what happens is that like Henry and the mother like go for a walk or like she finds him in his shed, his like fucked up psychopath shed where he keeps all of his, you know, weapons and shit. His tchotchkes. Um, his tchotchkes. His sociopath tchotchkes. Um, and in there is his little brother's rubber ducky. That's what it was. The and rubber the, ducky. And the mother finds it there. And hold on. I have a quote because it's hilarious. And the mom is just, she's like, she plays this part like really, really well. She's, she finds the duck and she's like horrified and upset and confused. And, and also there's like a dark kind of like, why the fuck does he have this? Like kind of thing. And she says, Henry, like what, why is this in here? Why do you have this? Um, and Henry says, it was mine before it was his. Because he's crazy. Because he's crazy. But he's, but, but, but he's also saying, that's a, that's a loaded statement. Because it's also saying, like, I'm your son. I'm alive. He's dead. Like, I was right. here before he was. How is this person who right. came after me and left before me? How does this person matter more than me? I mean, there's a whole bunch of there. That's a loaded It's statement. so loaded. And then she asks him point blank. She says, did you kill Richard? This is the infant son. And he says, what if I did? What, mom? Psycho. It's so good. Is that the only Fucking way love. we know? Is that the only way we know that he did it? Or is there something else that kind of alludes to that he did it as well? Um, I mean, I think he has moments with Mark in previous scenes where he alludes to it. Um, but I feel like that's the real, like, confirmation kind of moment from what I remember, which kind of led me to feel like, why is it taken so long for him to kill his little sister? I'm just like, why didn't that happen already? You know what I mean? I don't know. I, don't know. I mean, Money mud. Knows, like, how does... I Money wonder, mud. I wonder. I mean, maybe it's gendered. Yeah, I was thinking that. Exactly. Yeah. What's the relationship like between Henry and his dad? Oh, like not it's it's I mean, it goes back to what you were saying about like fathers, especially in like toxic masculinity. And the father is like largely absent from what I recall. But there is this like really choice uh, father parenting moment toward the end of the film. This is when like Henry is on that walk with his mother where it's implied that he like intends to kill her, especially now that she knows that he killed Richard. Um, he's like, I want to go to the cliff with you, Matt. And they like, they start like, they're like walking towards the cliff and Mark again, like putting two and two together. He's like, he's like <laughs> flipping out and he like runs and the father thinking it's like a grief stricken, like driven flip out just like locks him in the den and is basically like, you can't come out of there until you can calm down or whatever. So but that's one of those moments. It's like this kid needs help. <laughs> but it's 1993. So they're just going to lock him in the den. Ridiculous. Yeah. So we know the end. Yeah. You told us the end. She has a hard choice, a Sophie's choice, as they call it, and she chooses to spare the life of her nephew over her blood son after already losing another son. 
Yes. And it's interesting because like, again, in my memory, I didn't remember that she knew for sure that Henry killed Richard. But rewatching it, I'm like, oh, so she knows that. So this is not a, this is arguably not a hard choice. Oh, yeah. No, I remember watching it and realizing this wasn't a hard choice for her. Right. Like morally, she's completely off the hook. Yes, exactly. In the true sense of like, am I struggling with what to do in this moment? The answer is no. She has to live with her decision, which is probably where all the grief That's where the hesitation comes But like, there is no... You know, right. the only thing she could plausibly feel bad about is like, was there a world where I could have saved both? You know, from what yes. we see, the answer is no. So it's like, girl, you did the right thing. <laughs> you were in danger, girl. I was just about to say, I don't remember, I don't remember the character's name, but I was about to say, whatever her name is, you in danger, girl. <laughs> Waspy mom lady. Oh, Susan. Her name is Susan. Susan! That's right, because Elijah calls her Susan in the film. Which is why I started to wonder, I'm like, are they maybe not her aunts? Is she not his aunt? She is. Can we talk about the name Susan? (laughs) Please. It is a name that has gone away. When was the, what child, what woman, born since 1995? I'll be I more don't generous. Two thousand. I, I feel like I feel like two thousand was like the death of the Susan. Like no one's no one in the two thousands mm. was born and named Susan. There might have still been like the hyphenated like Sue Ellen's of the world to bring in mm. a don't tell mom babysitter's dead reference. But like yes, there might be there might be some Sue Ellen's still walking. You know that are under twenty three years of age, but mm-hmm. a Susan under twenty three. Mm. I doubt it. Mm. I doubt it. Wow. Wow. I went to school with some Susies, like college, some Susies, like a couple of Susies. And I think that that was like their name name, like on their birth certificate or whatever. Oh, my, uh, the, the interesting piece of trivia is so that part at the end with the cliff, Macaulay Culkin and Elijah Wood actually did that stunt in the final scene like they were they were rigged like to a cable but they both actually got dropped 30 feet off of a cliff with a cable attached like isn't that insane what happens in the contract room there's no contract room you know what i mean in the contract negotiations for said reality it's like all right this is what i'm saying like this shit doesn't happen now it's a child actor and so your dad who's also your manager is like all right if we're right. dropping him 30 feet, we're adding 100K to the contract. Is that like, right. you know what I mean? Like, what? How does that? I don't know, man. Like, reading that, I was like, that. there's no way that that still happens now. Like, how the fuck did that happen? How you the know? fuck did that happen? <laughs> Especially, like, someone like McCulkey Culkin, who was such an <laughs> oh asset at that time. Oh, my God. McCulkey? <laughs> McCulkey? <laughs> ah! It's crazy that this has not become his official nickname everywhere by now. It's like... McCulkey? <laughs> should have happened before now. McCulkey? I have a question for you. So it's interesting. We were supposed to have a, uh, a guest on the pod today. Uh, we were supposed to have a fellow educator on the podcast. So I came up with an educator-themed question for the okay. two of you. But I will just ask you. Okay. <laughs> it's a dumb question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you think that there are kids 
or people mm. who are inherently evil, like mm. kids who can't be reformed? <sighs> what a question. My honest answer is yes. Um, but I think that those types of children are so, so rare. Mm. Like I had in my time at the school I led close to a thousand students served in my time there. And I can think of 50 children who, you know, had severe emotional disturbance, who needed um, trauma-informed care, routinely brought into the school setting to support their fun- like health and, fun- you know, fun- health and functioning ability to interact with others, peers, adults, et cetera. And in all of that, I can only think of one child who I thought to myself, oh, wow, like this person could become a serial killer. Mm. I only thought that. Well, no, I thought I thought that twice. I'm sorry. I thought it, I thought I had I thought that twice. Both both young boys. Um, and, you know, there's so much um, happening in the culture right now that just is like wor- worried about the state of uh, growth and development for young boys, because I do think like. Um, we are in a, like, I don't want to say crisis moment, but like you think about like the radicalizing that's happening to young boys who are often white, who grow up in isolation, who are easily Mm. able to be radicalized into like hateful Mm. beliefs that, you know, become part of groups that, you know, promote hate and violence and terrorism. Um, Like there's, there is something about the like community structure, the familial structures that um, our young boys have access to that like in particular, that like is not working for a, a healthy number of kids, um, leaving them vulnerable to influences that like prey on that loneliness, right? And so there, there's like that, there's like that version of it. So like there's the people who are like, have the potential to be, healthy, empathetic, caring individuals who develop healthy attachment to others. I'd say that's the lion's share of children. They are vulnerable, they're, they're mm-hmm. isolated, and they just need the right kind of support. And then there, I do think there are some, I mean, you know, if you, you know, when you think about like, what's often frustrating when we think about mass shooters, for example, and the conversation often so quickly goes to mental illness. I mean, I have interacted, like I said, there are two students in my time at Intrepid, so two out of a thousand, so whatever that, you know, like winds up being, like 0.2% or whatever, but like of, of kids who, who I was like, I don't, I, I was at the point where I was like, I could see civil confinement like being necessary at this age. Like they are, to me, to me, it was the types of behavior that seemed like sociopathic already. Um, Mm. where I don't know that there's like any mental health intervention that can like, and I, and this is truly coming from a point of naivete. Like, I don't know any stories of psychopaths and sociopaths who like are able to be brought from back from the brink. I just don't know. I just don't know enough about it. Um, but because part of what they struggle with is social, is the ability to like, acknowledge someone else's humanity like they struggle exactly. with like i see you you are there's a person no outside empathy, of myself like, there's no, right yeah it's like a part yeah. of them, it's like a part of their body that's important to even have enough connection 
to recognize your risk to others that's like dead inside. Yeah. Yeah. So two of a thousand point two percent of the population. (laughs) Um, It's really interesting. And I focus on, I mean, there there are women, young girls who also face, who have similar challenges. I just think it's unfortunately more pronounced in boys, which raises a whole bunch of questions. Is that nature? Is that nurture? Right. All things I don't have answers, all things I don't have answers to. But what I will say is I think about that a lot, like most, most educators over, in my experience, over, over identify that population like i used to see kids routinely i see kids routinely who in their ieps were labeled emotionally disturbed who were just like either probably reacting to a like situational trauma they experienced or were in like unhealthy learning environments where they like weren't getting their certain their needs their basic needs for like learning connection being heard advocacy whatever met and so then they would have outbursts, but then in a setting and environment where they were able to form healthy relationships with educators or healthy relationships with students, like you wouldn't see those things. And that's why it was so important for me. Like a lot of, a lot of, um, of course, if a student has an IEP, we have a responsibility to like, and for those who are listening and don't happen to know this, but even though I think it's common knowledge, an IEP is an individualized education plan um, protected by state, by state and federal law that allows students to make sure that if they have disabilities, particularly, particularly learning disabilities, they have their like learning and other types of needs met in the school setting. And I would often see kids who, um, let me back up. So like we have a responsibility by law, if a student already has an IEP to make sure that we like are looking at what services need to be provided, taking that into the consideration with the total context of what the student's needs are and what's presenting under our observation and then meet their needs. But that being said, like, I think there's a mindset though, in some, in some learning communities where like, and meaning schools, meaning schools where the IEP defines the child. So like this child comes in with an IEP and they are labeled like a student with an IEP. And so then everything that you interact, every way we interact with that child can have a deficit mindset of like, this kid Mm. is different or this student, instead of just saying like, this is a student, that is identified to have a learning need, but that's not the whole of who they are as a student. Like, right. And this is also dynamic. That was a, 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 a need that may have been, in, you know, needed to be put in place when they were in fifth grade. But now they're, that they're in sixth grade in our school, maybe they don't need that support anymore. And so just like a need to like, and so that's why it was always helpful for me. There were so many times where you would look at behavior records from like ascending elementary school and it'd be like suspension, 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 mm. suspension. And then you look at the, the behavior record for that student at our school a, a whole year later. And like, it's only maybe a year later where I'm looking at their record for some other reason where I'm like, this kid had like a track record of high suspension in their previous school. You never would have known that here. And so I just think that there's yeah. often like, um, so much about the learning environment and contextual factors that shape how students show up at school that we treat as fixed factors that are like that child's broken as opposed to like, no, like the learning community and the systems around that child may be broken. And so we need to like unbundle those two things. Hmm. That's it. I'll get off my soapbox. No, that's not a soapbox whatsoever. It's worth saying. Yeah, I mean, this whole, yeah. the, like, the meta story of the plot in this is, like, young boy presenting with extreme emotional disturbance, potentially mm-hmm. clinically sociopathic or psychopathic behavior, because we don't really know the difference between those two terms, 
and it came up recently where I was trying to like discern like what's the difference between a sociopath and psychopath and could not discern that for myself. But either way, um, that kind of behavior and, um, you know, like you have to remember we are joining the story. I mean, actually, whoa, I just had like a thought that <laughs> I think might be deep, but like after I play it out loud, say it out loud, you might be like, that's not that deep. But like, you just sounded a, like Keanu Reeves. This is a boy who like has likely been presenting these kind of behaviors since early childhood and has right. not been seen. And then you have right. Elijah, Elijah who comes in for two weeks and sees this kid for the first time. Yeah. But what could it look could have looked like for this kid to have been seen his whole life by a brother like figure like Elijah? And again, nature nurture, like maybe some of these, some of this is unavoidable. And maybe all that means is that like little brother Richard wouldn't have died. Cause like maybe Elijah would have been there to be like, brother's a killer or like whatever <laughs> but like he there's a lot of emotional neglect going on clearly because like the types of things yes. that that we we are not confused as the audience about macaulay culkin's orientation we're like you look at that kid for two seconds we're like yo the motherfucker's crazy <laughs> but literally his father and mother can't seem to see that in their child now you could also argue their grief blinded them right they didn't want to lose another son so you start to just see what you want to see i mean who knows it could be so much but like he was finally seen, for better and worse, by his cousin, Mark, you know? And so it's a powerful story of kids being seen. Yeah. And, I mean, Mark similarly. Like, Mark's clearly going through some shit and, like, not really getting help. He's, like, sort of sent off to the cliffs of Maine to like recuperate or whatever, like by his father and like, doesn't get the help he needs whatsoever. So, although he does, he does, there are therapy sessions for him in Maine. And there's a part where he like, he asks that question to the therapist. He's like, do you think that some people are inherently evil? And she's like, no. And he's like, well, there are (laughs) my cousin Henry. Um, Yeah. Do you have anything else to say about this film? Have we no. come to the end? We've come to the end of the road. Aww. Okay, what should we leave our listeners with? Well, this is our last episode, so now this ending has more weight than I think I was anticipating. <laughs> well, if you've been listening over time, hopefully we've brought you joy, we've brought you laughter. We've brought you nostalgia for some of your favorite shows and media. And a sense of connection, too. And a sense of connection, particularly at the very beginning of this journey, when we were all feeling disconnection and very isolated and lonely. Mm-hmm. And Mia, do you have, do you have another podcast coming out? Um, coming maybe. down the road, perhaps? Maybe. I mean, it's definitely not a priority. Um... <laughs> This Your year, if it happens, full. if it were to, if it were to come online this year, that would be surprising. But <laughs> a few of my coworkers and I um, recognized six months ago we share something in common, which is that we're all people of the global majority who are dating white men, and so we thought it could be funny, catchy to have a podcast that focuses on those interracial dating dating dynamics when you are dating white men in particular. That's the concept. And we're not sure if we're really going to move forward with it, but every time we've mentioned it to people, they seem to think it would be an interesting conversation topic that could go in a lot of different directions for a long time. Um, So it's something we're thinking about. 
What about you? Do you want to share any of your upcoming projects? Oh my God. Well, I think I've probably mentioned, because we, we started this podcast before The Naturals even came out, actually. Um, so I made the first season of the Indie Crime Drama series called The Naturals, and um, I've been thinking for a long time about like how to continue it, um, because we made it for really cheap, and making a drama like that with stunts and shit, and you know, good actors and whatever, Making it that cheap is really, really hard. And after we finished that first season, I was like, I'm never going to do this again unless we have more money. <laughs> uh, but getting more money is like, oh, my fucking God. So I'm actually coming around to I'm just exploring like how to continue that. I've got like fucking a million other things in the hopper. But the naturals might have future seasons in audio form i think this uh doing this podcast like really i mean i had to self teach a lot of audio mixing stuff um but now i feel a little more comfortable with it and so that's a possibility and you know other than that just auditioning and hopefully we'll be on a screen near you sometime soon or a stage, whatever. We'll Yay, see. Yay, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's been fun sharing our chapter of our lives with you all listeners. and Yeah. You know, our creative journeys are not over. We're just taking a pause on this one. Yeah. We love y'all. Thanks for listening. Love y'all. Bye. Bye. Fuck with me.